It's March 11th, 2009, and you're listening to the NACOcast, coming to you from Canada's National Arts Centre in Ottawa. My name is Christopher Millard. Today on the NACOcast, we follow up on last month's broadcast in discussing the role of various people in the administration of symphony orchestras, and today we're going to address the subject of the artistic administrator. I want to quote a little article here from a uh, online online uh, salary.com website which discusses what people do, and there's this fabulous quote from a man named Joe Fabioli, who is the artistic administrator of the Ravinia Festival outside Chicago. And he says, My job is to figure out what could go wrong and make sure it doesn't. It's a great marriage of music and business. And when people think everything was effortless, that's when I know it's been done right. Well, what exactly is this job that Joe Fabioli is talking about? To answer that question, I've invited the artistic administrator of the National Arts Centre, Daphne Bird. Welcome, Daphne. Hi, Chris. Thanks. Okay. So what the heck what the heck is your job? Oh, Joe's description is very good. <laughs> Although I know he runs a major a major festival and has a lot of more um, uh, things that could go wrong than could go wrong for us here with our orchestra on the stage in a concert hall every night. Oh, what is the job? Well, first thing, the title of my position here is different from what the position's title was about ten years ago. Pinkus had this uh, vision that he wanted to change the title to Manager of Artistic Planning because somehow that infused it with, um, I think, uh, a little bit more, maybe, I don't know, weight, long-term vision responsibility for repertoire. Um, I don't know. I tend to call it Artistic Administrator still because it sounds like it's easier to explain. Of course, many orchestras have this have slightly different titles, but the job is essentially the person, the point person yeah. for a certain number of responsibilities. Absolutely. So it's for um, managing all of the <clears throat> planning of concerts, repertoire, with music director and guest conductors, selecting with the music director and guests the um, soloists who would appear with the orchestra, um, wrangling repertoire out of all of them, um, coming up with repertoire ideas of my own, which balance the vision of the music director and would complement it, um, and keeping track of all of the, the ideas that get sort of thrown against a wall over the course of any one-year period and figuring out how to put that into a, a, a season form. And we haven't even begun to talk about marketing or budget. Joe Fabioli also said... One artist had a rider in her contract stipulating there would be no broccoli anywhere backstage. That's hilarious. I wonder who that was. So let's start with this aspect of the job. How much of your job is actually having to men- to tend to the idiosyncrasies and the needs of visiting artists? Or can you delegate this? Mm. Mm, I can delegate it most times. Um, and I came up through the ranks as a, an assistant artistic administrator, you know, uh, schlepper of coffee, et cetera, et cetera. So I've... I've at a certain point, you feel like you've paid your due. But 
also you feel like you know artists well enough that you would rather look after those idiosyncrasies than delegate it to someone who might not know um, the subtlety of how to respond. Now, this is not the rock and roll world. This is not uh, green M&Ms only, please, or, you know, go, dare I say, get me a hooker at 3 a.m. or something like that. Uh, it's So you know, Yo-Yo, I, Yo-Yo Ma doesn't ask for blue Gatorade specifically? No, 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 no. But it's knowing that a singer probably wouldn't eat the few hours before he or she performs and that maybe you want to see if you can find a chicken salad sandwich after the concert or at the break. or Right. But this is just a kind of a peripheral responsibility. Yes, absolutely. And because because I would be the person who um, is the, the, the first contact with the soloist and through their manager and ongoing through like the year before they appear – during which we've got a signed contract and we're advertising something, I tend to be the one that wants to shepherd it through to the end. Mm-hmm. Um, well, me and sort of a small team of people. Um, because you feel like you have a relationship with that person even before they get here. Is that relationship um, based upon your previous experiences or your ongoing contact with their managers or both? Both. Both. I would say both. So talk about this relationship with uh, artist managers. Is, um, is this a big part of your day? Oh, Ta- it's huge. Talking on the phone to New York managers? Is huge, that, huge. Okay. E- email, and email has been um, a blessing and a curse for this too because um, it, it can never replace a personal phone call or a visit. But it does allow us to remain in much more constant contact. Um, I've moved from orchestra to orchestra over the last 17, 18 years, working for about five different ones. But one of the consistent relationships has been my relationship with artist managers because I change cities, but the, the relationships don't change. So that's the relationship I've carried forward with me. And some of us have grown up together you know, in in the business, I you know, assistant to the assistant agent at the, you know, in the basement in a tall building in New York, is now the you know the head of Opus Three Artists. Let's let's just step back a bit. You're sitting down with, in this case, in Ottawa, with our music director Pinkazukuman, and you're, you're putting together a particular program for a particular month, two years from now. And Pinkas says to you, Daphne. Can we get Nikki Snader to come and play Mendelssohn Concerto for that concert? What's your next step? Considering that we're probably, you know, 18 months out, fingers crossed, 18 months to two years out. It's it's very easy to pick up the phone and say, what's he doing? Does he know his dates now, for instance, for the Swedish Chamber Orchestra where he's music director? Um, and if he has those weeks, we could easily pencil in this week if it's free. I mean, it takes one phone call to do that because we already have a relationship with him. Pinkus has a relationship with him. Nikki Snyder's manager is going to be quick to say, you know what, he really wants to work with Pinkus. We'll make this a priority. So that's that kind of phone call where I already know that we've got, um, we've been talking ongoing about how to invite the artist to begin with. So that phone call to the agent wouldn't be cold. Mm-hmm. It would it would have been, you know, the culmination of probably a year before of my talking to the agent, oh, do you want to invite Nikki back? Yes, we would, but how to do it, what repertoire, what context, and when finally Pink said I hone in on a certain um, idea for a program that has a particular concerto on it, he would say, oh, let's invite him to play the Brooks Scottish Fantasy. That's what I want to do in that week, and he would be the best person for it. So sometimes it works like that, repertoire first, and then who is the best person to perform it. Talk to me about the cold calls. Mine or theirs? Yours. <laughs> in other words, what you, you heard about an artist and you really want to get him, and Pinka says, do whatever you can to bring this thing, bring this person in. How does it all start? Great. How- the great part about 
the business and if you've been in it for a while and already have relationships is that the call is not entirely cold. Um, it will usually be to an artist manager that I've worked with for on other for other artists. The big agencies have um, booking contacts often. So if I don't know the artist's personal manager at, say, you know, big Columbia Artist Management, I will call one person who is my point person and say, you know, Ron, I, you know, we'd like a link with, I don't know, Kathleen Battle. Can you give Michaela Kurtz a phone call? It's just and networking. It is. Mm-hmm. It is. And that's where the constant conversations come in. Um, just regular updates. I have semi-regular phone appointments with um, a handful of artist managers or those booking liaisons at the major agency who basically have me as an account. And they're responsible for they're responsible for keeping in touch with me just as much as I'm responsible for keeping in touch with them. And we brainstorm about artists, and they talk to me about new people on the roster. So very often the cold call, um, I'm the one receiving the cold call. Mm-hmm. And is that... A- a huge number of hours every week of you having to f- fend off requests from managers, please hire my artist? No, I think it's probably, you know, 2% of the time. Okay. And that's yeah. just because you're an established, mm-hmm. lo- long-standing administrator mm-hmm. with with many orchestras. Email is crazy for this, though, because, you know, artists will often send their own uh, intro packages over email. And you do get the strange packages from the other side of the world saying, to whom it may concern, please hire me. I'm a talented conductor. Every year, Musical America publishes a, a large, glossy magazine that's about 400 pages, and it's full of advertisements and great pictures and, and copy about how great this person is and how great this person is. How much of that enters into your decision? Do you keep a copy of that? Zero. On? Zero. Musical America is my Bible because it's the phone book, but not because of the ads. Okay. So if I need a quick check um, you know, for a phone number for, let's say, well, the Ravinia Festival, um, I often still pick up the Musical America instead of going online. I see. How do you train to be this this artistic administrator? What's what's the background? Mm, my background is probably similar to m- many in that I have an undergraduate degree in music, you know, with a slight emphasis in performance. Mm-hmm. But I started working for an orchestra, um, in my case, the Atlanta Symphony, when I was still a senior. And wanted to just work my way up. I had, well, my friends will tell you that I told them when I was 17 I wanted to do this for a living. I have no memory of this at all. I went to school to study political science and to, you know, discover the world and finally fell back into music because it was the thing that was the most interesting to me, even though I fought it. Um, So I was very, very lucky to have fantastic mentors um, when I started working in Atlanta who said, here, you want to think about this, point me in the right direction. I mean, I was the receptionist for 18 months, but they handed me small projects to do, unusual things, transcribing the personnel manager's annual conference minutes. Um, it, so I, I, I am just, I was in the right place at the right time to have, you know, the artistic administrators at the ASO, both of them over the course of a couple of years, um, shepherd me and... Um, give me really good advice. So I was astounded to learn that there is actually a very viable organization called the Association for Arts Administration Educators. Really? Did you know that? No. Well, I can, if you wish, wish to know, they're having their annual conference in Philadelphia in April, and I have the complete roster here, including all the schedule of what, what oh is my being discussed. Well, here's the amazing thing. Uh, this, I mean, it's fairly recent, the organization of uh, actually standardized uh, education in arts administration. Mm. In 
the world currently, or at least in the Western world, we have 16 undergraduate universities offering undergraduate degrees, and an astounding 45 graduate schools are training and giving master's degrees in arts administration. And I think this was just coming sort of into being um, as I was finishing my college degree. Because mm-hmm. I have friends who, for instance, went to University of Madison, Wisconsin, uh, to study arts administration for a master's degree and um, did find it extremely useful. And there's there are many times where I think, oh, I think I may have missed something here and there. One of the critical things that they don't train you in conservatory is um, they don't train you about how to manage people how to be you know, a manager in an organization that's essentially a business where you have employees, you have people who report to you. You need to learn how to, to lead and to run a business. Um, the, two, the two of the people who are most influential in my career development um, have quite interesting backgrounds. You know, both musicians, historians, by sort of undergrad training, uh, but one went to law school for labor law. Um, and eventually is became a you know, fantastic general manager in an orchestra. And the other went to the Kellogg School of Business after he did his undergrad at Eastman. And and that, you know, that kind of fundamental business training, complementing a music degree, I think would be fantastic. Law school is what I, you know, about 10 years ago, I thought if I were to go back to some kind of school, that, that would be what I would do. Yeah, particularly... Approach to learning how to learn and learning how mm-hmm. to learning how to think and how to express. It's a it's a, a great discipline. I want to get back to the the whole business end of what you do, sure. and especially the dollar end. And we're in very very difficult times right now. And of course, that's nothing new for for symphony orchestras, who are always in difficult times and always struggling against the bottom line. So I want to talk to you a bit about the astounding portion of budgets that are allocated to conductors and soloists. It's quite extraordinary, the range of fees that get paid. It is. So, without naming names, can you kind of give give our audience a picture of what the possible range of fees for a concert engagement for a conductor might be from lowest end to highest end. I'm, I'm for a conductor. For a conductor, and then we'll talk about soloists. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a range that doesn't apply simply to our orchestra. Because understood. We, this is the a, yeah, a, a, sort we, of a generic do, observation. Because there are some conductors who uh, command pretty interesting fees who've not been with us yet. Okay. But I would say for someone, you know. Ranging from, and I'm usually thinking in U.S. dollars here, okay. just as a caveat. Sort of like um, a hockey coach. <laughs> yeah. Uh, probably from, like, say, for a pair of concerts between, you know, $6,000 to $65,000. Mm-hmm. And for a soloist? About the same. About the same. Mm-hmm. Now, when you stretch into the pop world, yeah. for our pops artists, um, or anyone's pops artists, if you're going for a, a, a huge superstar, um, there's a very different kind of negotiation for a fee. Now, granted, for someone to come in and appear with an orchestra in a 2,000-seat hall, um, it's going to be a very different kind of fee negotiation than if they're playing at a big hockey arena and it's 20,000 seats. So, you know, the agents for the, I don't know, say the Tony Bennett's and the Johnny Mathis's of the world um, understand that. And, and that's where you get into fee negotiations that are based on um, gross potential for a room. And we haven't, um, since I've been here, we haven't done a, a split of the, the net after expenses. But at, in other places, I've negotiated actually a, you know, a guaranteed fee with an artist and then a split of the profits. So now two questions regarding money. First of all, we're situated in Canada where 
negotiations are conducted in U.S. dollars, and we are currently experiencing one of yet another downturn in the mm-hmm. currency exchange rate. So it's costing you 30% more for mm-hmm. an artist than it would for somebody just a, an hour south of the border. So that's one issue. And the other issue, of course, is that times are really tough. So I guess to, 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 to look at the latter question first, are these tough times affecting artists' fees? They are. They are. And, they... and, and how extremely so? Um, n- not so extremely yet. Um, but artist managers are, are much more flexible now because they see that uh, the the ability to 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 get an engagement for an artist is is becoming more and more difficult unless they are someone who has really like proven box office track record. I think, um, and that's a very gen- generic statement. I'm I don't mean to imply that you know one wouldn't give a chance to an artist who is young and rising and that one couldn't make a case with an audience for buying a ticket. But it's it's very um, it's becoming very common to cry poverty um, and to say, look, you know, w- we want to make sure that we offer work to musicians, but we can't be frivolous with this six or eight thousand dollars that we're going to spend on a on a soloist. And what about the issue of the uh, dis- the disadvantage that we have of being? Uh in in a, in bad currency situation mm-hmm. here in Canada, we, do you get any help with that? Um, yes and no. I mean, we've been the budget for the nine ten season beginning in September. Um, you know, we've been working on that for about a year. So we announced the season last week. Um, that was in March, and our budget was set. And I knew over a year ago that I needed to plan a certain way, and meaning that I needed to budget at a fixed exchange rate for the U.S. dollar. To Canadian dollars, so that entire budget was based on, I think, a dollar twenty-five. When a year ago we weren't at that. Oh, um, so you you really expected the worst. Yep, yep. We planned for it, and the CFO here is very very careful about that. He just says, "Look, just just plan for it, mm-hmm. because um, we need a buffer just in case." So that kind of um, planning with U.S. dollars is very very important, and we're we're also with. Um, well, with European artists, it's it's actually even more difficult because the euro is stronger the euro than is very the U.S. Strong, dollar yeah. or the Canadian dollar. That's right. Um, so you're putting together um, right now, I presume you're starting, you're probably well into season 11, 12 now, huh? Oh, gosh, no. But I'd love to say that I was. We're well into... 10, we're, 11. We're well into 10, 11 in terms of um, we, we lay out... Um, this is an unusual situation... Um, the Arts Center, because of our our need to share the space with particularly the dance department. And we do lay in the orchestra's weeks first. We lay in Pincus's weeks. We know what his commitments um, are going to be with us before he takes any guest conducting engagement. So that it's critical that we fix the calendar very carefully so that, so that on those weeks that he's not conducting, he does have the flexibility to work with the RPO or whatever. But we are very careful to work with our colleagues at the Arts Center to know what their long-term plans are, especially in dance, because there are some really big, really big stars that they'd like to entice, and we have to build in a bit of flexibility, and they're not there yet with their calendar. So for 10-11, as you are gradually assembling to its final final, uh, organizational fullness, the, the, the roster of artists... Is the budget constantly being readjusted? Are you constantly having to mm. to to balance? Uh, do you mm-hmm. have a specific dollar figure that you have been given at this oh, point yes. for ten eleven? There's there's an envelope that I right now I'm assuming 
something. I, it hasn't been officially given to me yet, but I know that I need to, to fix my bottom line at a certain point and also for myself provide a certain percentage of buffer in case there's a pullback because we, we know that over the next few years it's going to be difficult. Um, so I'm just trying to be prudent in that regard. Right. And this comes down to, to, to not just thinking about my guest artist budget and my soul, uh, the guest conductor budget, which is, you know, that's what I control. But what I make, what I decide to do in terms of repertoire affects um, budgets of other people, the librarian, the personnel manager. So I'm constantly juggling um, a, a loose budget that, uh, that manages um, the cost of extra musicians for certain repertoire. So I'm able to make a decision very quickly about programming La Mer, for instance, or where you have to hire twenty extras. Exactly. So yeah. I, I, and I'm not. We've, you know, at this point, I'm not speaking with a personal manager's office about a full shape of a season, and they're not ready to to have that information given to them yet for say ten eleven. But I don't need to be cavalier about the work. So managing, I, the the most difficult part of I think. Uh, putting together the financial picture for a season is the impact that repertoire has on what we do. Okay, so repertoire is really wh where I want to go in this conversation because for our audiences, that, that, that's their that's their entry, mm -hmm. knowing whether it's Beethoven or Brahms or, or or whatever. So the decisions here on repertoire are are made by by inputs from several sources. Primarily, one presumes from the music director mm -hmm. and then from you, but also, very, very importantly, what you're hearing from your audiences. Mm -hmm. How is that information, uh, in terms of local audience preference, channeled to your desk? We have very vocal subscribers and audience members who know that they can pick up the phone or drop an email um, to the NAC. And any email that comes in, even to the, comes in to the General National Arts Center comment line, um, gets forwarded instantly to, in our case, someone who's responsible for communications for the music department for the orchestra. And um, there are usually responses within about two days. And it's very, it's very interesting to see what subscribers have to say. Um, I am, I'm often delighted that what they're craving is very much in line with what we're planning to offer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, because our audiences will notice if we've, if we're neglecting a certain period of repertoire or if there's, um, you know, too much repetition. You're hearing They're from very, audience members constantly? Yes. Yes. Interesting. And they will often pick up the phone and call, and the call gets transferred to me if it's a very specific artistic, you know, comment. So does the marketing department, uh, wh wh where do they enter into this? Into this? I mean, do they say, well, look, traditionally we can't sell this composer, we can't sell this period, don't do this? Mm -hmm. or, or are they essentially no. just min just going to do do what the artistic end of the operation tells them um, it's a it's a dance and we've ex we've we've shifted the way that we plan um, our seasons in terms of communications with the marketing over the last year two years we've we've put into place and in fact after I talk to you I have to go to a meeting um, a regular weekly meeting of a, a season planning group that involves not just the artistic team but does involve our marketing colleagues and education colleagues to talk about you know where we are and what the ideas are and talk about them early enough so that I can say look we're thinking about these four young guest conductors this kind of repertoire with them here's what their personalities are like on the podium can you begin thinking now eight nine months out how you would talk to the public about who these guys are mm -hmm. rather than um, at at my deadline for programming which is in November hand them a completely finished, con you know, concept of a season that they have to digest for the first time and then deliver a brochure within two months, it's ludicrous. 
so that they're very they're very happy to have to to get their creative juices flowing around certain concepts. And they've said to me in the past, look, you know, this is artistically very interesting. We're going to have a challenge selling, you know, a program mostly of you know, in in our case actually in Ottawa, often Shostakovich is challenging. So they like to have some time to think about a plan and to think about balance on a season. And they'll be the first ones to say, if you know, I'll give you the Shostakovich Symphony Number no. 1 if you give me that Ravel Bolero. <laughs> you know, I was in Chicago last week, and the Chicago Symphony Orchestra's program last week was conducted by Pierre Boulez. Mm-hmm. It, was a, it was an unusual uh, program, and it was Edgar Varese's Amérique, not oh. performed often. No. A real challenge for an audience. And I don't know whether I'm encouraged or depressed to tell you that there were tons and tons and tons of empty seats, even in a so-called sophisticated uh, city with with an audience that ought to really appreciate something that, I mean, would be wonderful. One of the great conductors of all time conducting his repertoire. Mm -hmm. So I guess the question uh, that needs to be asked is, it's a universal question, why the heck is contemporary music so darn hard to sell? And even contemporary music that's 75 years old. I I don't know. Um, We have had um, a, a challenge here in that the regular diet of repertoire, and this is sounding like a crutch, but in Ottawa, the regular diet of repertoire that the orchestra shared with the audience over its 40 years was sort of of a certain era, you know, ending around sort of early 20th century usually. Mm-hmm. And there is a there are a few decades right in the, the middle of the 20th century, in between the wars and beyond, that we not performed a lot of. And I think with our audience, there is just, there's a gap. And one of the challenges that we've been given by the CEO here is to find a way to bridge that gap, bring and but bring the audience along w- with us as we add repertoire to our diets and to theirs, and not just throw it at them without some kind of preparation. And that's the big challenge here: is how do you prepare an audience to take on repertoire that might not have been a steady part of their diet? And in our case, we're just talking about Strauss. You know, it's not. A, well, of course, it, we have a certain limitation here at the National Arts Centre Orchestra no, because do. it's not a really large orchestra. We do. We're usually performing with between 50 and 62 musicians, mm-hmm. so you, you, you don't get to do the big Stravinsky de- no. uh, ballets. Uh, but once in a while, if we, if we want to do Miraculous Mandarin, yeah. um, we don't want the audience to go in cold, not having understood what led up to the creation of that piece. It's a vicious circle, isn't it? Because mm-hmm. if, you, if you haven't done it, it's hard to start. Mm-hmm. If you don't start, it's hard to continue. Mm-hmm. Um, your Chicago example is very funny because I, I I don't want to pick on Chicago because they're a great orchestra and it's a it's an interesting city of six million people with ver- varied tastes. And Pika Zuckerman, Daniel Berenborn, Pierre Boulez, Berg Kammer Concert with explanation talk from the stage, fascinating, and it was for Boulez's birthday. Mm-hmm. Oh, maybe thirty percent else. Yeah, it's tough. Uh-huh. <laughs> it was surprising. So I don't know. I don't know quite what to say about, um, you know, how to how to fill the hall when there's music that we we really believe in. Um, I often say, you know, in, in a museum um, at a, a, a say a challenging exhibit of contemporary art, you can you can choose to walk away from a painting and then come back to it later, or walk away from it and look at something else. But if you're sitting in a concert hall. Um, you can't get unless up and you leave. get up and leave. Okay, you right. don't really do that. People you're, don't do it. Mm-mm. National Arts Centre here in Canada, of course, is being in the nation's capital and being associated with 
government, rightly or wrongly, often is a, a real lightning rod for criticism. And one of the criticisms, criticisms that we get, of course, it's the same criticism that's leveled at orchestras all over the world, really. It's how little or how much we're supporting our own young composers from our own period. And I know sitting in an orchestra for many years and watching the reality that a, a lot of what comes out of, the, out, of, out of young composers locally, a lot of it is very difficult for our often conservative audiences. And so we're trying to balance selling tickets and staying alive and staying viable with our obligation to support the future and the evolution of, of music. Your thoughts? Hmm. I think we're on the right track with the, the Summer Composers program that allows for um, some semi-public workshopping of a piece wherein you can hear a composer speak about the process of writing, watch the conductor of a smaller ensemble um, where you, you can achieve some kind of intimacy with an audience and a small ensemble in a smaller room. Um, I think it, that would bring an audience member along. You know, if you just hear someone speak about what it means to create something, what it, how it feels to perform it from the performer's point of view. Um, I think we're on the right track there. And there was um, a fantastic moment for me last year when we had the American composer Steve Mackey here for a performance of his percussion concerto and the soloist was Colin Curry. We had an unusual setup on stage. Audience members were on stage. Orchestra was on stage. Um, very intimate. And there was an elderly woman seated next to me and I chatted with her a bit because she didn't look like our typical new music concert crowd. And I asked her why she was here and who she was, and she said she was just a subscriber, but she just likes new experiences. And after the composer and soloist talked a bit about the piece, it started. they started to play, and halfway through the second movement, um, there was a very, very interesting, beautiful moment. And I, I heard and felt the woman next to me draw in a gasp of breath, and just out of pure excitement and delight. And I thought, oh, that's fantastic. She's my grandmother's age, and she is, loves this piece of music. And she's experiencing it, and she's letting it happen, and she's not judging it ahead of time. I don't know how to fill the hall with 2,000 people exactly like her, but I wish I could. Yeah, from our point of view. Yeah, we, she was just open. Yeah, she it, was open to the yeah. experience, and she was open to the personal, um, the, you know, the personal experience of hearing people talk about their pieces and acknowledging that they're there, you know, performing and channeling art, not just there to uh, entertain her, you know. It's such a struggle with the loss of education in the schools for about music that, mm -hmm. it, it, that you know, it, they just don't have the background. And it's very hard to assimilate the language of music nowadays compared to the music of 150 and 250 years ago. I think it is. I think it is too. I think one of the one of the the ways to I don't know to 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 counteract some of the uh, you know the, the loss of 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 serious education within the school system is just to to encourage parents and teachers to try to in involve children in some kind of public performance just to to get them used to being audience members. I mean, so much of it will start with just listening. It's 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 hard to listen. It is. Listening is a skill, mm -hmm. and I think it's a skill that was somehow there's some horrible deviation in the whole relationship between com composers and audience that went on in the mid 20th century. And I, as a as a trained musician and someone who's spent my entire life wanting to love music from every period, I have found it 
the whole adventure with what one might call modernism, and certainly beginning with serialism, right up until even into the 80s, when we got, came into a kind of a postmodern environment where it was no longer a sin to write a major chord in music, that there was a very long period there where there was, a, for whatever reason, an alienation. And, and it's changing. Yeah, and perhaps... You know, one one can one can go back and analyze and say it's it's you know it's post-war. It's it's a it's a you know that the the pendulum swings back and forth no matter what. And of course, we should have expected that eventually we'd get through postmodernism and or modernism and get to postmodernism and get back to sort of a neo-romantic feeling again. Um, but I I also wonder about um, not just the nuts and bolts of the creation of new musical language with throughout the 20th century, but the dare I say, sort of self-indulgent um, need for the artist to have personal expression and insist on it at all costs without thinking about uh, creating something that was beyond themselves. I've invented my own language and I'm going to write a novel in my own language. Why won't you buy it? Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Your background, incidentally, at uh, undergraduate school in your music degree was as a bassoonist. It was. <laughs> why do I meet so many bassoon players? And why does I meet bassoon so players many, who are in strange management roles? Why do I meet so many bassoon players who who go on to other things? Oh, I don't know. Well, because there are very few professional bassoonist jobs in the world. There's a very good it. answer. You know, there's two to three in every orchestra. Well, I'm lucky to have my position. We're lucky yeah. to have you in this position. So, thank Daphne you. Burt, thank you so much for coming in and talking oh, to us. It was a pleasure. About uh, this fascinating and all-encompassing work that you do. You're welcome. Take care. Bye. Don't forget, you can subscribe to this and other NAC podcasts by visiting nacpodcasts.ca, where you'll find our past episodes, subscription links, and instructions on how to subscribe. Don't forget to check out our sister podcast, Explore the Symphony, with Marjolaine Laroche and Jean-Jacques von Vlasselaer. You can also easily find this podcast as a free subscription in the podcast section of the iTunes Music Store. Just search on NACOcast. N-A-C-O-C-A-S-T. The NACOcast has a Facebook group. Drop in for a chat on any of our NACOcast topics and meet other NACOcast listeners. So until next time, this is Christopher Millard for the new media team here at the National Arts Centre in Ottawa. Thank you.